1: Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talise, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based out of the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Leif Winar. Leif holds the Chair of Philosophy and Law at King's College London. His research is focused in political and moral philosophy, and much of his recent work has to do with the ethical issues surrounding the global oil trade. He's the author of the 2016 book, Blood Oil, Tyrants, Violence, and the Rules that Run the World. This book has led to the publication in 2018 of a companion volume, Beyond Blood Oil, Philosophy, Policy, and the Future. Here, Leif encapsulates and develops the themes of his first book, Blood Oil, and then replies to five critical engagements with his view. Hey, Leif, how are you? Great, Bob. Thanks so much. Well, it's good to have you on the program, and, and thank you for joining me
0: really looking forward to this conversation.
1: So uh, why don't we begin then with your work on oil, and particularly your your work on blood oil. Your account in the book begins by making explicit what I suppose many of us are maybe dimly aware of, namely that our lives uh, are seemingly irrevocably slathered in oil. And this means that our lives are bound up with the regimes of the world's most brutal tyrants. Can you tell us that that sort of backstory about the supply chains and and how we're all connected in this way?
0: We really do live in a petro world, Bob. Oil is everywhere. Now, the first thing to say, of course, is because of climate change, we should be getting off oil and all fossil fuels just as fast as we possibly can. But that's going to take some time because right now, 90% of the world's transportation runs on oil. That's almost every car, truck, plane, ship that we have, which means that every time we transport ourselves or buy something that's been transported to us, we are paying for oil. We pay for oil all the time. And it's not just for transportation. This is the thing that I didn't realize before I started looking into this. So many things we pay for every day are made from oil. So essentially, if it's plastic, it's oil. That means your computer screen, your keyboard, your glasses. Think about when you go to the grocery store. Almost everything you see is wrapped in plastic. It's wrapped in oil. And oil is in petrochemicals that we smear on our face. We brush our teeth with it. It's in our waistbands. It might be helping your sex life. Oil is absolutely everywhere. We pay it almost every time. We go to the cash register or shop online. Now, because of the world's supply chains, it's hard to know where the money we spend for oil goes. But I've done some tracing, and it turns out that the money that we spend every day goes to empower some of the most violent and ruthless men in the world. There's something called the oil curse. So at the very end of these supply chains, are some of the countries that end up in our headlines every day. So think about, for example, Saudi Arabia, which has been much in the news because of this terrible war that they're they're prosecuting in Yemen, and because of that uh, Washington Post uh, columnist who got killed a few months ago. I ran the numbers recently, and I found out that the average American family sent about $60 to Saudi Arabia last year just by filling up the tank. And when you think about it, well, $60 is about enough to buy a buy a bone saw. So we don't tend to think of what happens to the money that we pay at the pump or at the till, but it does go to empower some of the most cruel and violent regimes in the world.
1: So I, I take it that the... Uh, the the picture that you're painting has a it seems kind of grim in that uh, it looks as if our everyday activities and 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 mainly perhaps mainly consumer activities but maybe not only consumer activities I mean, are are tainted in in this way. Do you think that that makes us complicit with the brutality of uh, these tyrants? We can hardly help.
0: Giving our money to these dictators and armed groups. It's just almost impossible to stay away from oil in our everyday lives. What's putting us into business with these violent and corrupt men overseas is actually a deep rule in the global system that we take almost entirely for granted. But if you trace it back, this rule goes back to the days of the Atlantic slave trade, and we've just never abolished it, even though it makes no sense. Let me say what this rule is. This is the rule that makes it legal for us to buy oil and other natural resources from whoever in foreign countries can control them by force. So, for example, uh, decades ago, when Saddam Hussein's junta Took over Iraq in a coup, it became legal for Americans to buy Iraq's oil from Saddam. And then, years later, when ISIS took over some of those same wells, it became legal for everybody to buy Iraq's oil from ISIS. The world's rule for oil is literally might makes right. If they can seize it by force, control it by force, We'll buy it from them. And that's the rule that puts us into business with these violent and coercive men overseas and sends the money from our everyday purchases to them and empowers them to start wars, to oppress the people, to engage in all sorts of luxurious spending while the children of their countries are buying poverty. It's that rule that's causing the trouble. It's that rule that we've got to change.
1: We seem as as offensive morally uh, as the, the rule you've just depicted s- strikes me and I suspect not me simply qua moral political philosopher. I mean, it's just an offensive sounding rule. Uh, it's not uncommon to hear leaders of uh, constitutional democracies. I'm thinking of my own president. Speak as if this is a, uh, at least some of the components of this rule are perfectly acceptable. So, when our president has recently said things about the Saudis and leaders of, of, of other nations in the Middle East, that, you know, there's just too much money at stake for the United States for us to create any diplomatic unpleasantness with that part of the world, because, you know, it's just billions of dollars. And I'm not going to give that up in order to, uh, you know, react appropriately to uh, the execution of a journalist.
0: Yeah. Well, so first, like with climate change, let's just acknowledge some fundamental facts. I hope we would we would all agree on this. So first, let me just say that the United States and other Western countries have in the past engaged in very questionable, unjust actions for the sake of security oil. In the Middle East, and let me also hope that we'll agree that our oil companies have engaged in highly questionable, often exploitative campaigns in many regions of the world, and so on. So at that level, we know the story of oil, but this rule that we all take for granted, this is at a deeper level. This is the foundation of the global trade system. Whoever could control the oil by force. It's legal under American law, under every country's law. It's legal to buy the oil from them. Now, that rule we take for granted. But if you think about it, it doesn't make any common sense. I mean, if an armed gang takes over the Shell station uh, right near you in Nashville, do you think that American law should give the gang the legal right to sell off the gas and keep the money? I know. Right. that would cause chaos that would be bad <laughs> but when Gaddafi took over Libya in a coup it did become legal for Americans to buy Libya's oil this deep rule in the global system it violates the most basic ideas of property rights and even human rights but we keep with it because it simply is the way the world works and as you suggest some very powerful interests are invested in keeping it
1: so, uh, let me ask: What the the alternative rule is? Then you're right that it it, it would strike anybody. I, I think in any from any particular political persuasion that that recognizes property at all. <laughs> that uh, in the case of the the gang taking over the gas station, it would be an insane uh, legal regime that then allowed people to to go, you know, acquire property in that gasoline from the, from the gang members, is there some other principle underlying your sort of critique of this, this rule? Uh, if the people in control of the government of a particular territory don't own the resources by virtue of having successfully conducted a coup, who owns the resources?
0: That's a great question. And that's where the good news in this story starts. Good. Now, I want to get to that good news. And let me just motivate it by giving one more set of reasons why it's so important for us to move to a different way of running the world. And you've heard about why we're in business with these Saudis and so on, how we funded Saddam and Gaddafi. Let me try to put the story together. The consequences of the bad current way we're doing things by just asking to look at the news we see every day. I mean, we see war and oppression, corruption, and hunger and poverty and refugees. And this rule about oil and other resources explains a whole lot of what we're seeing all the time. So, all of those things just mentioned, I just mentioned, tend to congregate in countries that have a lot of oil. Countries with the most civil wars have oil. The most oppressive countries have oil. The most corrupt countries have oil. Hunger crises, extreme poverty. These are oil and other resources in the country. And you won't be surprised to hear that today most refugees are flowing flowing from oil-rich countries. Our money, huge amounts of our money, are flowing through the world's supply chains because of this bad old rule and ending up in the hands of unaccountable men who are causing all sorts of trouble with our money. This is what's called the resource curse. And it's this bad rule empowered by our money that's causing so many resource curse phenomena. We see on the news all the time. The problem, as you can see, is that this old rule sends our money to empower autocrats and armed groups, and it gives them unaccountable power once they get that money, as long as they hold on to these oil wells, these holes in the ground, they can do whatever they want with the money. That's the cause of the problem. The good news is that the solution to the problem is just a matter of common sense. The solution to the problem is a principle that goes back in our country to Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address. The solution to the problem is just to say, a country belongs to A country belongs to its people. The resources belong to the people. So it's the people who, at the end of the day, should have the ultimate right to control the oil going out of their country. We're not talking about every country has to be democratic, but it should be that the people can find out what's happening to their resources. They can protest the government if they don't like what's happening. And if enough citizens really don't like what the government is doing, well, policy. Minimum, bare bones, civil liberties, and political rights. If the people own the country, we should only be buying oil and other resources from countries where the people can hold the government accountable even to a minimum degree. That's got to be the solution. Accountability for the huge power of oil. I've got to say right now, if you do the numbers, 50% of the traded oil in sell the oil are not accountable for the citizens that's the oil curse we can change the rules of the world so that we only buy oil from countries where those who sell it are minimally accountable for the citizens of the country who are the oils so uh,
1: apart from norway then <laughs> where should we be buying oil
0: it's a great question and norway is uh certainly not the only country we can buy oil from. Like I said, we're looking for minimum, bare bones civil liberties and political rights. You look at all the countries in the world, can the people find out what's happening with their government and the oil, and they protest that, they protest will that, will things change? There's lots of independent metrics that measure every country in the world on civil liberties and political rights. Again, if you do the numbers, you'll see that a lot of oil comes from places where there's no accountability. But a lot of oil comes from places where there is at least minimum accountability of the government to the people. states has a lot of oil. Canada has a lot of oil. And we're not asking for all countries to be like that. Even even Nigeria, for example, all of its problems is still above the line. A transition to a world where we get rid of this battle like it's right. We must be careful, responsible, gradual, but there is a lot of oil in the world. We can't
1: do it. Maybe that's a nice uh, segue to sort of pull the focus back a little bit. So you're describing a, a change in a major sort of global system of trade relations and diplomatic relations and institutional uh, changes and the rest that look like they're, those changes look like they're within reach because uh, the way things are is so obviously rooted in a, an unacceptable from, I think, at almost any moral point of view, an unacceptable principle, sort of a might makes right principle whoever's you know got control of the territory also has property in the territory's resources so i can see how pointing that out and sort of um, articulating all of the ways in which that might makes makes right principle is flawed that that's not a hard sell. I take it. I mean, most most people with any uh, moral sense at all will will see the the flaw in that principle. However, it is a pretty large scale social change that one uh, has to be advocating for once one sees the unacceptability of might makes right. So even though it's a it's an easy philosophical argument to win, it seems to me it still requires large scale social change. Uh, so maybe one question is like. How do you think that change on that, on that hot, sort of large scale? can happen even in what might be in this case might seem like a pretty advantageous philosophical position it looks like all the arguments are on the side of life when are but still there is the practical problem uh, you know the inertia of institutions and norms in uh, especially in global finance and financial institutions and diplomatic institutions very very hard to change can you tell us a little bit about what your thoughts are about how the the, the actual practical change
0: can be initiated Great. And thank you so much for being so kind about the philosophical argument. (laughs) I don't want to rest all the weight on that. I mean, the practical arguments are so important. And let me just add one more to that. Sure. I mean, we've already seen how this bad old rule of might makes right is helping to drive civil war, oppression, corruption, hunger, poverty, refugees abroad. Those are really serious problems for the people in the countries affected. But I also want to add the chaos and the violence over there comes back to affect us. And so this is really a national security argument to add to the other practical arguments. If you think about the major threats and crises that the West has faced over the last 40 years, you'll find almost all of them have one thing in common. So now, Terrible civil war still in Syria with Assad barrel bombing his own people, the refugee crisis straining the politics of Europe. But before that, there was ISIS with the atrocities and headings. Before that, it was Gaddafi 40 years of sponsorship of terrorism. Before that, here in London, it was 7 7, Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda, of course, behind 9 11 New York. For al-Qaeda, it was Saddam Hussein. And 40 years ago, the Soviet Union surging ahead of us. All of those threats and crises I just mentioned have one thing in common. They all came from oil-rich states. So the problem of the oil curse is not just a problem for them over there. All of that unaccountable power comes back to us and our countries too. That's a real threat that our leaders can see their only problem is for us citizens to focus their attention on the long-term instead of what it usually is on the short-term. Short-term, it's always easiest for our political leaders to do what they've always done, not to mess with our diplomatic relations and keep on funneling our money so that it keeps empowering these authoritarians abroad. That's the change, Switching our leaders to the long term. Let me give you one encouraging piece of news where it actually worked. My clean trade team went down to Brazil and found some very sympathetic legislators there. One visionary legislator introduced the Clean Trade Bill, which, if it's passed, just says Brazil will no longer make it legal to buy oil from authoritarian regimes. And also, by the way, Brazil will tip its national oil companies from signing any tracks with regimes that are not minimally accountable to their people. Hmm. Now, Brazil is a big country. You know, America is the third most populous country in the world. Brazil is the fifth. It's much poorer than America, and it's got a corruption crisis down there like you wouldn't believe. But still, the politicians can see the long-term advantages of getting out of business with some of the world's ruthless men. If Brazil can do it politically, why can't
1: Well, let me ask, uh, how likely do you think other countries, including the United States or Canada, how likely is it that they'll follow suit?
0: One key question, which you may be asking yourself, is how much is it going to cost for us to stop importing authoritarian oil?
1: Right. I guess that that is a a key – that will be a key question for the feasibility part, right?
0: Absolutely. And it's it's a completely valid question. We've got a lot of things on our plate. There's a lot of things we need to do. This is important, but how much is it going to cost? I was talking to Nick Butler, who was a former vice president of BP, and I asked him how much it would cost, how long it would take to stop importing oil from authoritarian countries. And he said, well, which countries do you mean by authoritarian? And I showed him these independent metrics. And he said, really? You want to stop importing oil from Russia and Saudi Arabia and Libya? I said, yeah, how long would it take? And he came back the next time we talked. And he said, well, you know, the United States is no problem. It's got a lot of its own oil now, even as we transition to the rules of the future. The United States could get off authoritarian oil in a matter of months. It would cost on nothing barrels to just switch around to uh, non-authoritarian sources. The real problem is not the United States, North America. The real question is about Europe. And there, there is some significant time and money. Butler thought it would take about three to five years and tens of billions of euros to make the transition, especially away from Russian oil and gas. Now, three to five years, tens of billions of euros, that's not trivial. But if you put it into the context of, say, defense spending, it certainly is feasible. And there is, even today, enough oil being produced for all of the West to stop importing oil authoritarian. It's not a pipe we really can't do it. And imagine the effect that that would have on the politics of the Middle East if the American people stood up and said, we don't want to be in business anymore with those dictators and those terrible armed groups like ISIS. We believe that every country belongs to its people. We don't think we have a right to buy oil from anyone unless they're minimally accountable for
1: people. Well, so that's... That's a, a reason to be hopeful. I wanted to um, make sure that we had time, and you've been very generous this evening uh, uh, on your clock. At least it's morning here in Nashville, but um, you been very generous with your time. You've put a, you've done a lot of of thinking and a lot of writing, and sort of uh, what we might think of as concrete politics, you know, the proposals and initiatives. And just now, you were mentioning uh, your uh, experience in Brazil with a, a sort of a actual. Policy proposal: The Clean Trade Initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about that work and what the initiative is is all about?
0: Clean Trade is an NGO that has one mission, which is to end the resource curse by making sure that all the people of the world really do control their own natural resources. Luckily, this is a human right that's proclaimed in the major treaties that almost every country has already signed. Uh, resources of the country belong to its own people. We're just trying to get the international community to put its money where its mouth is and to stick up for this principle that almost everyone already gives lip service to. I can just say 98% of the people in the world live in a country that has signed a major treaty that says the resources of a country belong to country. That's the rule that we've got to embed deeply in the world system so we get out of business is going very well. We're talking to governments, we're talking to investors, we're talking to consumer power. And cleantrade.org is the website where you can see more of what's going on. And what encourages me is that the world is already convinced that countries should belong to their own This old rule of fight makes right is clearly against common sense. What we need to do is
1: live up to our principles. Well, Leif, that's fabulous, and I want to thank you for all the work that you're putting in. <laughs> for academics, we often don't acquire the know-how and the, the other kinds of skills that go into doing many of the things that you're doing, which includes, you know, actually talking to leaders and CEOs and, and you know, large-scale business uh, people and all the rest. So I don't know how you acquired all the, the, this massive skill set that enables you to do all the things that you do, but it's been really fabulous uh, talking to you about your work uh, in these areas. Uh, so thank you for, for joining me today.
0: Absolutely. My pleasure, Bob. I'm so pleased to be on the podcast.
1: Well, thanks. And thank you listeners for tuning into the Why We Argue podcast, which I remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. If you're so inclined, you can follow the project on Twitter and Facebook at Public Humility. That's one word, Public Humility. Thank you for listening and bye for now.